Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Section 12 of David Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding is titled of the academical or skeptical philosophy. And in the three subsections, he is going to be exploring what kind of skeptical philosophy he wants to endorse and which he wants to reject. And he begins by talking about this important distinction that's going to be made between two species of skepticism. And so he says, there is a species of skepticism antecedent to all study in philosophy, which is much inculcated by Descartes and others as a sovereign preservative against error and precipitate judgment. It recommends a universal doubt. And if you know anything about Rene Descartes' discourse or his meditations, you're probably quite familiar with this notion of hyperbolic or methodological doubt as the place where you begin for philosophy. And Hume says we can not only doubt our former opinions and principles, but also our very faculties of whose veracity we must assure ourselves by a chain of reasoning deduced from some original principle, which cannot be fallacious or deceitful. And Hume says that's kind of a non-starter because you're not going to find such a principle, or at least you're not going to find such a principle that will meet the the requirements of rational inquiry, like we see Descartes beginning with. And so he says, you know, there isn't any such principle, or if there was, could we advance a step beyond it by, but by use of the very faculties that we're supposed to be using? The Cartesian doubt, therefore, were it ever possible to be attained by any human creature, and then in parentheses, as it plainly is not, and parentheses, would be entirely incurable, and no reasoning could ever bring us to a state of assurance and conviction on any subject. So he's rejecting Cartesian doubt, but he does say, well, you know, this can actually be useful when moderate can be understood in a very reasonable sense and is a necessary preparative to the study of philosophy. Why? Because it allows us to preserve proper impartiality in our judgment and to wean our mind from those prejudices which we might have imbibed from education or rash opinion. So he's saying, you know, the Cartesian method, if we take out this requirement of doubting everything and then building everything up on indubitable principles, it can actually be quite helpful. So, you know, skepticism antecedent to study and philosophy, limited endorsement there. And then Hume says, there is another species of skepticism consequent, so following science and inquiry. And is this the same thing or different than study and philosophy? I mean, I think these use Using these more or less synonymous. So we have, you know, what we do before, what we do after. And after we've actually learned something by study in philosophy or science and inquiry, like what has been going on in the entire work of the inquiry, right? So he says that we suppose either
either the absolute fallaciousness of mental faculties because we experience that our mental faculties aren't really any good or their unfitness to reach any fixed determination. Even our very senses are brought into dispute by a certain kind of philosophers and the maxims, that is the ways in which we regulate our common life are subjected to the same doubt as the most profound principles or conclusions of metaphysics and theology. And so, you know, this is essentially Hume's program, but he wants to do it again in a moderate way. So we turn to looking at skepticism about the senses, you know, sight, hearing, touch, all of these things that we kind of take for granted. And Hume is actually going to say something quite startling here. He says, I need not insist on the more trite topics employed by skeptics in all ages against the evidence of sense. So two things there evidence of sense, right? So we're not saying that the senses themselves are, you know, at bottom, totally unreliable. We're just saying, yeah, a lot of times we get things messed up. And notice that he is saying at, at his time in the 18th century, yeah, we've, we've heard enough of this stuff. I mean, history of ideas is full of these sorts of things. Let me give you a few examples. The imperfection and fallaciousness of our occasions on numberless occasions, the crooked appearance of an oar in water, right? So refraction, the various aspects of objects according to their different distances. Descartes likes this thing about the sun is actually quite large, but we see it as this tiny dot. He also talks about the uh, square tower that looks round at a distance, uh, the double images which arise from pressing one eye, and many other appearances of like nature. And so Hume says, hey, we all know these, right? What do these these go to prove to us? What do they actually tell us? They just show us that we need to pay attention to the senses. The senses alone are not implicitly to be depended on, but we must correct their evidence by reason and considerations derived from the nature of the medium, distance of the object, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, you know, to use the sun example, the sun is not a glowing yellow disc that's about this big up in the sky. It's actually a gigantic body. So we use reasoning to figure that out. But there are, as Hume is going to say, more profound arguments of the senses, and these admit of not so easy a solution. In fact, they may not have a complete solution altogether. And so this is where Hume talks about this natural instinct to repose faith in our senses. From the beginning of our being, we are taking in sense information and we are assuming that it actually corresponds to something. He actually says that even the animal creation is governed by a like opinion. So it's not just human beings, it's also all the rest of animal life insofar as it is, you know, registering things that it, it takes to be outside of itself. And he says that, you know, we do this without any reasoning, even before the use of reason, we always suppose an external universe, which depends not on our perception. So we suppose a universe outside of ourselves as objects. And notice what he says there, that depends not on our perception. So, I mean, strictly speaking, if I want 
wanted to confine myself only to what I perceive in the moment, perhaps only the room that I'm filming this in right now actually exists because that's all that I'm sensing, right? So if you're watching this or listening to it and you're really focused on it, maybe that's all that exists, right? We don't think of it that way. We actually have this naive faith that no, no, there's like, if I go beyond this, there's, you know, a hallway and rooms and a larger world. It's part of a building and then part of a city. And we could go on and on and on. So we have this natural instinct that leads us to trust in our senses, supposing a natural universe. And going further, we trust that our perceptions or representations are veridical in the sense that they refer to things outside of ourself. He says that we suppose the very images presented by the senses to be the external objects. And we never entertain any suspicion that the one are nothing but representations of the other. But if we actually start doing philosophy and thinking these things through, what I see with my eyes, I say, oh, I see the lights out there. But what I'm actually registering is an idea or a perception or whatever, which is in my mind, in my consciousness, not necessarily that thing that I think is out there to which it corresponds. So he says, the very table which we see white and which we feel hard, is believed to exist independent of our perception and to be something external to our mind to uh, which perceives it. And he says, our presence bestows not being on it. Our absence does not annihilate it. So again, world of objects, but now we can think about individual objects and our perceptions of them, right? And he goes on and he says, this universal and primary opinion of all human beings is destroyed by the slightest philosophy, which teaches us that nothing can ever be present to the mind, but an image or a perception, and that the senses are only the inlets through which these images are conveyed without being able to produce any immediate intercourse between the mind and the object outside of ourselves. The table we see seems to diminish as we move away from it, right? But the real table doesn't change at all. So there's a disconnect between our perceptions or images in our consciousness, our mind, and what is supposed to be out there. And he says that these are the obvious dictates of reason and no man who reflects ever doubted that the existences we consider when we say this house and that tree are nothing but perceptions in the mind and fleeting copies or representations of other existences, which remain uniform and independent. But you know, th this is not too bad, right? Because we still do have external objects. We're just like, well, our senses kind of, they, you know, they don't deceive us as such, like totally get things wrong, but they do let's say, allow us to mislead ourselves about these, these external objects. And then he says something quite interesting, right? He says, how do we know whether the perceptions of the senses are produced by external objects resembling them? How would we resolve this? Well, we would have to rely on experience, but here experience is not helpful because we're using experience to make sense out of experience, right? Experience is and must be entirely silent, he says. We don't have any reason to actually think from a rational perspective that there are external objects. And then he says, well, maybe you have recourse to the veracity of the Supreme Being. Who's he talking about here? Once again, Rene Descartes, who does in fact do this in the meditations and in the discourse, right? So he says the recourse to the veracity of the Supreme Being in order to prove the veracity, the truthfulness of our senses 
is making a weird circuit. If God's veracity were concerned in this matter, our senses would be entirely infallible because it's not possible he can ever deceive, right? So that's a problem. And then he says, here's another issue. If the external world is called into question, we're, we're going to be at a loss to find arguments by which we can prove the existence of that being or any attributes. So again, a rejection of Cartesianism and of the rationalism you could say that is involved there. Hume is going to deepen the problem by bringing up the issue of primary and secondary qualities, something that you see in both the rationalist and the empiricist side of early modern philosophy. So we should remind ourselves, well, what, what is this distinction between primary and secondary qualities? So secondary qualities are things that we think are there in the object, but they're not really there in the object. They're produced in our minds by how our senses take in that object. So the yellow of this book is a matter we know from science of light waves, uh, radiation that is being registered by the eye. And then it's actually taking like signals and turning it into electrical impulses, which go through the optic nerve, go into the brain. The brain actually puts together all of this stuff in you know some rather still mysterious way. And we get yellow and we also get you know, hard on, on this side and the pages themselves being soft and smooth. These are qualities that are not actually there in the object as such. They're there in my interaction with the object. So what is actually there? Well, you know, we would say things like shape and form and structure and, you know, maybe the, if we get down to like chemical things, the interactions between chemical compounds and electrical impulses, all, all these sorts of things we'd say are actually primary. So the primary is the basis for the secondary. And, you know, uh, people like Locke and Descartes made strong distinctions between these two kinds of properties. So he says, it's universally allowed by modern inquirers, all the sensible qualities of objects like hard, soft, hot, cold, white, black are merely secondary and they don't exist in the objects. They are perceptions of the mind without any external archetype or model which they represent. And then here's the clincher. Hume says, well, okay, let's assume that's the case. If that's true of secondary qualities, it must also follow with regard to the supposed primary qualities of extension and solidity. And we could actually extend this to other supposed primary qualities like number or shape or things like that. He says, where do we actually get our idea of extension from? From the senses of sight and feeling. You can say the same thing about solidity, except that's more a matter of feeling. This is just as dependent on our way of perceiving things through representations as are the secondary qualities. So primary qualities are just as we could say doubtful, just as dubious, right? And then he says, well, maybe there's another way in which we get our mind around these. He says, nothing can save us from this conclusion, but asserting that the ideas of those primary qualities are attained by abstraction. Okay, that's a common way of dealing with that. And he says, if we examine that, we're going to find that unintelligible and absurd, an extension that is neither tangible nor visible can't possibly be conceived. You're playing with words, right? He says, let any man try to conceive a triangle in general 
which is neither isosceles nor scalenum, nor has any particular length or proportion of sides. And you will soon perceive the absurdity of all the scholastic notions with regard to abstraction and general ideas. So he's saying, well, this is not actually going to work. And so we're, we're in kind of a bind here, right? And he concludes this at the end of part one, says the first philosophical objection to the evidence of the sense or the opinion of external existence consists in this, that such an opinion, if rested on natural instinct, is contrary to reason. So we've got a clash between what reason, as humans just reasoned out, tells us, and this sort of primary natural instinct that leads us to think things that are against reason. Or, he says, if referred to reason, it's contrary to the natural instinct and at the same time carries no rational evidence to convince an impartial inquiry. So that, that's a first philosophical objection, right? The second objection, he says, goes further and represents this opinion as contrary to reason, at least if it be a principle of reason that all sensible qualities are in the mind, not in the object. Take away from matter all of its intelligible qualities, primary and secondary, you in a matter annihilate it and leave only a certain unknown and inexplicable something as the cause of our perception. And he says, eh, we don't want to go down that route. That would be like the route of one of Hume's predecessors, Berkeley. But you can also see something like this in Locke. We, we don't really know what substance is, right? And Hume wants to say, well, maybe that's going a little too far, right? But we certainly have good reasons, Hume thinks, to be rather skeptical about what it is that our senses do in fact purport to tell us. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.